Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember, subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now on our 30th episode of 2023. Before I kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor for Fiber for Breakfast. You know, in Washington, it's the last week before the August recess. And yes, Congress is actually going to have an August recess this year. And the Senate's focused on finishing the National Defense Authorization Act, affectionately known as NDAA. It's going to take up most of the floor time. However, there may be a move by the Democratic leadership to bring Anna Gomez's nomination to the floor. Originally, um, she was going to be grouped with sitting FCC commissioners Starks and Carr, but the Democrats want to get her in place as soon as possible. And Starks and Carr are both in holdover position or periods, so they can continue to serve. So there's no real urgency to get those votes. Tomorrow, the House. Energy and Commerce Committee is going to vote to mark up the bipartisan legislation HR 4510. This is the NTI Reauthorization Act of 2023. You know, it's been over three decades since NTIA was last authorized. And uh, this legislation is going to improve the management of spectrum, develop a national strategy to close the digital divide, and update the mission and functions of the agency. You know, back at the FCC, Chairwoman uh, Jessica Rosenworcel has shared with her FCC colleagues a uh, notice of inquiry that will kick off the agency's annual evaluation of the state broadband across the country as required by Section 706 of the Telecom Act. Rosenworcel proposes that the Commission consider several crucial characteristics of broadband deployment, including affordability, adoption, availability, and equitable access when determining whether broadband is being deployed in a reasonable and timely fashion to all Americans. The NOI is going to renew a push to increase the national fixed broadband standard to 100 meg down with the 20 meg up, which given that 88% of service providers are offering gigabit or more, seems like too little too late, but the current standard is 25.3, so I guess we should probably get around to doing this someday. Um, but the NOI is going to propose a separate national goal on uh, one gigabit by 500 meg, which is a little more realistic. Coming up quickly is Fiber Connect 2023 in Orlando, August 20 to 23. We are less than four weeks out, and we have completely sold out the Gaylord Palms, and uh, we have opened up reservations at the Delta uh, by Marriott, which is right around the corner. So if you haven't registered, Please do so because Delta is going to sell out soon. Our next and final uh, regional Fiber Connect workshop will be in Minneapolis on October 24th. So you're not going to want to miss that. So please register today. All right. So that brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with John Gabriel, Senior Advisor at the Center for Employment Opportunities, to discuss a fair chance hiring with conviction. You know, last week on Fire for Breakfast, we had the pleasure of hearing from our good friend Ryan Kuntz. Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Needham, and Ryan discussed the federal funding and economic impacts on the fiber broadband industry. 
you know, so a couple of key takeaways is that the fiber industry is going to be very robust through the end of the decade. And he believes that the supply chain and inventory levels will be normalized by the beginning of next year. So that's all good news. Today on Fiber Breakfast, our guest is John Gabriel from the Center for Employment Opportunities discussed a fair chance hiring with conviction. John is a senior advisor, works for the Center for uh, Employment Opportunities, focusing on equity into the employment landscape for every person. John cares deeply about working to support the members of our society, of our society that are in the greatest need. One of the most marginalized demographics in our community includes those that are justice involved. I love these words, John, justice involved. And they are punished long after incarceration has ended. His strategic goal is to implement a genuine positive change that directly supports people with past convictions. John's formal education includes a master's of business administration from Pepperdine, and John has significant experience in corporate operations and has helped organizations maximize their social, societal, and economic value within national and global networks. So John, welcome, and for audience, please type in your questions as we go. So with that, I'll kick it over to you, John, and take us away. Well, thank you for that uh, that very dramatic introduction. I recognize that those are, those perhaps are some of my own words, um, but I, I think that then no further introduction is required, and so we will we will simply jump into the topic. Uh, so basically, we're going to be talking about you know hiring with conviction, and so just to give a brief overview of our organization, we CEO the Center for Employment Opportunities provides immediate, effective and comprehensive employment services. And that is specifically to those who are members of the reentry population, those who are on supervised release. And of course, there is the social agenda aspect of what we do, but this is also really about matching two needs together. There are a tremendous amount of employers within our country that have open roles that they often struggle to meet the employment or the, the needs of, of their open roles. We have what to some degree historically has been an untapped population of individuals who are ready, willing, and able to fill those roles, both from a soft and hard skill standpoint. And so it's really matching those two together. And that's that's you know, at the end of the day, that is why why we do what we do, both for the social good, but also for the economic mobility of the individuals in that population and for the prosperity of the country as a whole. All right, so during today's agenda, we're gonna kind of cover these, these topics. I'm gonna to give a brief overview of the criminal legal system. I'm gonna discuss transferable skills. We'll discuss fair chance hiring and then focus in on the business case. And you may wonder why, why an overview of the criminal legal system? I'm not necessarily that interested in it. I think some people have different conceptions and in some cases misconceptions about what goes on during the life of an individual in the carceral system. And the reality is it is an intensely rigorous environment that results in individuals having a life experience that can then galvanize them as individuals and make them a better, and I'm gonna repeat that, a better employee for an organization going forward because they have gone through something that is what is arguably a very high pressure situation. Again, these are not individuals in the system. These are individuals who have successfully navigated the system and are out and are ready to rejoin society and more importantly, the workplace. Okay, criminal legal system 101. So some of you may look at this and think to yourself, 
This looks very overwhelming and confusing. And it is by design meant to look overwhelming and confusing because that is literally what the system is for someone to navigate through and ultimately successfully get out. It, it, it is by design uh, meant to snare people in and keep them, you know, almost like, I mean, if you look over on the right side, you can see that it's almost like a revolving door and it's, it's by design. I mean, the reality is that this is an industry in this country and, you know, a hotel, does not do well with empty rooms. The carceral systems do not do well with empty beds. So they want to keep people in there. But bottom line is, you can see all those, those green squares represent the kind of intake process that occurs. Somebody gets caught up in an issue, they're arrested, there's an arraignment, trial, guilty pleas, they're either acquitted or convicted. I can tell you that often once somebody is arrested, the likelihood of an acquittal is, is slim to none. I mean, the, 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 the conviction rates are quite high. Often those don't necessarily always correlate with what was actually done. It's more a matter of you know plea bargains and how can we move things through as quickly and efficiently as possible to ensure that people get into the carceral system, don't get out at any time soon. Okay, so understanding the differences between prison and jail. So jail, that's meant as primarily as a, a temporary holding facility. And that's when somebody has been accused of a crime, but not yet convicted. Uh, as stated here, it's both, or it's typically county sheriffs or local jurisdiction that manages those. Um, here you can see that it says, you know, pretrial up to 10 years of incarceration. So depending on the states, depending on the type of conviction, uh, most often once conviction occurs, you are transferred to a prison, but in some cases, uh, if it's cer certain charges, uh, sentences under a certain period of time, then you can serve your time in, in jail. Typically though, jails are not designed for long-term, uh, you know, long-term housing. And so the, you know, the, the services that are available for everybody that's there are, are typically more limited. Uh, with the prison systems, those are indeed, you know, designed for, for longer term stays. And that is actually where people can get a dramatic amount of education opportunities, uh, you know, life skills classes, uh, vocational opportunities, those kinds of things that will actually prepare them to relatively rapidly move into and join the workforce once they get released. So again, you know, brief overview of, of what goes on. There are medical facilities, but I, you know, and actually, you know what, I'm just going to put this out there right now so you understand where I'm coming from, from my perspective. So Gary was very generous in his description of all of my experience, you know, many years uh, in the healthcare industry as a management consultant, but I myself made an unfortunate decision and I spent a period of time in the carceral system as an involuntary guest. And so, you know, that's where I'm coming from, from this perspective. So when I speak of what happens in the carceral system, I'm definitely speaking from a place of experience. But as you can see, there, there is medical uh, evaluations that take place. But, you know, my point here is that it, it is very limited. Yes, the carceral systems do have, you know, certain types of uh, medical specialists on staff, but the likelihood of an inmate getting the opportunity to actually see them is slim to none. The one thing, though, I do want to focus on here is the education. As they categorize people, they specifically categorize them based on education to ultimately provide them with additional education at an appropriate level. So if, they, if somebody comes in and they, they're a high school graduate, they will categorize them according to that. And then once they get to their, their permanent location, they will then receive opportunities to advance their education while incarcerated. 
uh, you know, after the assessments are taken place, then they're categorized and then set into the appropriate levels. So here, here's where we want to focus in on, on, on the, the various opportunities and the structure that is involved. Um, there's education, self-help, and training. Uh, the scheduling within the carceral system is actually quite rigorous. I mean, you have to get up quite early for count, and then once you once you are counted, you then go on to your whatever your, your work responsibility is. One thing I want to point out is in the carceral system, the correctional officer's sole responsibility is to maintain order and to ensure that you know those who are incarcerated remain incarcerated. Beyond that, everything else that in that occurs within the industrialized prison complex is run and managed by the inmate population, meaning all of the logistics, the ordering, the food preparation, the, the clothing, the, anything logistics related within the confines of the, of the prison is all run and managed by the population, the inmate population. And so that gives individuals a tremendous amount of exposure to fairly significant responsibilities that are directly in line with responsibilities associated with full-time employment outside. Uh, you know, one thing also to highlight, and this is specific to California, the conservation camps. Um, if you qualify for them, you actually leave the confines of the prison and you go to a conservation camp, which is a minimum security facility. Uh, it's, it's primarily managed by the Department of Forestry and Fire Prevention in conjunction with the CDCR. And again, this is specific to California, but they have similar types of programs in other states. But this is very significant responsibility. Uh, and, and not just the hand crews, but the entire running of the camp, the, the water treatment, uh, the water, water and sewer plant operators run, all inmate run, uh, the maintenance on all vehicles, all inmate run. So significant amounts of, of experience and rigor and discipline occurs within the prison systems. One thing I want to emphasize here. So, you know, Gary pointed out that, that he liked the language in, in the description that he was reading. And the reality is language is very important, especially when it comes to certain minority and marginalized demographics. Uh, you know, when, when you refer to someone as a parolee, an ex-felon, a prisoner, yes, these are technically correct descriptions, but you are really, to some degree, assigning blame when you're, when you're talking. And, and I'm, I am not by any means, uh, you know, minimizing the reality that something did occur, conviction did take place. In some cases, there are victims. But the reality is once you have served your time, you, you have paid the price, you have rehabilitated yourself and you have exited the carceral system to continue to you know, punch down on an individual using uh, what are, are less than flattering terms to describe an individual. It really does not lend itself well to helping that individual reintegrate into society because at the end of the day, I, 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 I touched on it in the beginning, but it's all about you know, solidarity. These are people that are part of our society we want them to benefit. We want the organizations that they work for to benefit. So language, in fact, does matter. Okay, so I've, I've touched on this a bit, but basically the transferable skills gained in non-traditional places of employment. Obviously, the non-traditional place of employment that we're talking about is, the, is our carceral system. So 
I'm gonna highlight some of the transferable soft skills. So communication, I'm gonna tell you right now, everything means something in prison. There, there's no such thing as stray comments. You, you have to be extremely mindful of what you say, how you say it, tones and all that kind of thing, because it is called doing time for a reason. And when you're doing time, people have time to sit and think and fixate on what is said. And so communication amongst individuals while in the carceral system becomes extremely critical. And so people really learn how to communicate properly because it's, you know, it, it, it is what keeps things moving in a smooth and uh, non-escalated type of manner. Problem solving. Resources are at an all-time scarce level in the carceral system. And so, you know, something that may seem very trivial, uh, trivial on the outside, on the inside, because you have very, very limited access and, and you know, availability of resources, you have to figure out how to make things. I mean, you, you know, prime example, you uh, you smash your hand and you cut your finger. It, it can be quite a lengthy period of time before you're able to get in contact with a correctional officer, they get a medical person there. So you've got to like, you've got to figure out how to manage things. And so the level of creativity that is, it's, you know, they say that necessity is the mother of invention. I assure you, I've seen very creative approaches to a variety of issues within the carceral system. And those are, are very much transferable skills. Uh, it goes without saying the ability to work in high stress environments. To describe the carceral system as a high-stress environment, so I'll, I, I'll elaborate a bit more on my own background. Uh, I also served on active duty in the United States Army for six years, from 1995 to 2001. And I would tell you this: that the ability to manage stress, the ability to, to handle high-pressure environments, it, it did equip me with certain skill set and tools that I leveraged while in the carceral system. I, I would not have perhaps gotten through it as smoothly as I did and, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally intact had I not had those skills. And so I would say that the experiences are very parallel. So if somebody successfully navigates and exits the carceral system, they have similar levels of discipline and rigor and commitment to getting through something that a soldier does at the time of their discharge from, from active duty. So when you get out and somebody comes and says, hey, listen, I got this pile of work for you and you, you need to get it done. You need to get it done by the end of the week. Somebody who hasn't been through those types of experiences before may, may get stressed out, may have an ability or, you know, may have an inability to get it done in a timely manner. But I can tell you this, somebody that's been through these types of situations will look at it and be like, you know what, not a problem. I'll, I'll, I'll categorize things, I'll figure it out, I'll create my timeline and I'll drive towards that timeline and I'll get it done. And so it's really a matter of framing based on their historical experiences. And then of course, interpersonal skills. And this ties back to that communication piece. Interpersonal skills, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, you may have heard, you know, the politics that, that exist within the carceral system. Those are alive and well. And what is portrayed in the movies does not even capture a fraction of the intensity of what goes on from a political standpoint within, within that system. And so interpersonal skills, the ability to read both verbal, nonverbal communication, to adjust you know, the way you're delivering your information, very, very critical for maintaining peace and order within, within that environment. And so these are all things that become 
you know, almost second nature. It's, it's like it's tools of the trade to get through something in a, in a successful manner. So these are things that are really baked into an individual has come out. And, and these are things that are extremely valuable and applicable in the corporate world. Hard skills. So I've touched on this already, but, you know, the vocational training, as I said, like the laundry, the clothing, the logistics, the ordering, all of those things are all managed. I mean, there's literally one free staff that kind of supervises everything. And then there's, you know, 30, 30 uh, of, of the inmate population that are assigned to running a kitchen or, or running the, the sew shop or, uh, you know, some, some of the prison systems, they have, you know, manufacturing, uh, you know, furniture and parts and things. Like, I mean, these are all things, like I said, all driven by the, the, the inmate population. Technical skills, uh, you know, I can reflect on my own experience when I went to, I, I myself was a, a ultimately, you know, the last, I think, year or so that I was in, I spent a, at a conservation camp and I was, I started out on a hand crew, but then they found out, I don't, I'm not sure how they found out. I think the way I spoke or something along those lines. They're like, you, you seem very, uh, you're, you're kind of an oddball here. What's going on with you? So they were able to determine that I had a tremendous amount of like IT skills and MBA and had done management consulting for years. And so I ended up, you know, being the clerk, which was basically doing all of the ordering, all the paperwork, all the processing for that particular camp. Um, and so, you know, obviously I came in with those, but there was a clerk before me, you know, and then they trained them up on that. So you, so people definitely come out with very hard IT skills uh, because every system, every, you know, to include prison systems are, are run by computers and you, you have to have people on the inside that are managing all that. Social services. So this, some of the, the life skills classes that I mentioned and the anger management, all those classes, those classes are facilitated by, so individuals are, you know, they identify themselves as being interested in that. They are then trained up. And then once they're trained up, then they, that, that particular inmate will then provide those, those classes. And so they're able to cultivate and develop a tremendous amount of social skills. And then obviously entrepreneurship, um, there's an opportunity to, develop art and then you can actually then sell your art uh, you can if you if you work you know if you work in uh, areas where you can do welding you can create things and, and sell them so it really does like give people an opportunity to literally run a business uh, and so again i mean these are very uh, you know these are, these are good skills these are, are are skills that are literally created through necessity and then galvanized through experience okay so recognizing transferable skills uh, okay, so we can do an activity here. Have, do, have we had any questions yet? No questions? Uh, we'll get into the questions at the end, but um, yeah, I mean, some definitely some okay. comments okay. Uh, right. that come in. Okay, all right, well, so this, this is an activity, but I think, you know, for the for the sake of time, we can kind of, if anybody wants to just type in some responses. So basically, I'm just going to read a case study and you kind of give an example of what you think might be a potential, you know, maybe, maybe just think through it. Because like, like I said, for the, the sake of time, we'll, we'll kind of go through this rather quickly. But this is somebody's, you know, they're giving an the example. When I was in prison, there wasn't an opportunity to work. I did, however, find sobriety through AA. I began to facilitate AA groups in my prison dorm. So here's an individual who had an issue. They recognized the issue. They came up with a path to managing that issue. They then ultimately managed that issue. They then turned around and helped others who, who came from the same area or you know, came from the same, same uh, suffering from the same vice 
and help facilitate their path down potentially like getting control of that particular vice. And so, you know, that that is a key example of where both soft and hard skills can be developed through a very much a, a non-traditional and in, in this case, you know, somewhat uh, challenging and unfortunate situation. Uh, you know, next example, when I was in prison, I was responsible for feeding 600 people per day. I have three children and I'm going to tell you right now, cooking for the three of them, hugely complex. I can only imagine the logistics that goes into cooking for 600 people. And I assure you of this, in prison, as I mentioned, you know, people have nothing but time to think about things. And so if you serve a bad meal, you know who to go follow up with to say, hey, listen, you know, this meal wasn't good. So people who run the kitchen and prepare the meals, they take it seriously. Uh, you know, a lot of complexity in terms of keeping keeping uh, on top of what needs to be ordered, the ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And again, that's, that is all run by the prison population. Last example, when I was in prison, I was a clerk in the law library. I worked under a correctional officer and my tasks included checking out books, keeping records, following up on past due items and making copies. I mean, these, these are all, you know, basic, you know, clerical type of, of responsibilities that are immediately applicable to any corporate environment. And, you know, I, like I said, I gave an example of myself. I, I worked as a clerk at the, the fire camp, which had, you know, a tremendous amount. I mean, you know, the daily operations is, you know, it's essentially like a, a little city that, uh, you know, was out, out in the middle of nowhere and, Everything had to be, to be managed uh, from both a, a you know a hands-on and, and a logistics standpoint. So I mean, as you can see, the things that occur in the carceral system with the prison population, the, these are things that are, are are very valuable in the corporate world. Okay, so what what is fair chance hiring? I mean, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is giving individuals a fair chance at employment based on who they are, their skill set, and momentarily setting aside a past conviction based on you know what is a mistake. But one thing I want to want to further emphasize: so creating a fairer chance. This isn't just about a fair chance, the fair chance for the pool of potential employees. It's also a fair chance for employers. And I, I you know I stated it at the very beginning of the presentation. So this is an opportunity to, to match up, you know, two areas of need. You've got employers who have job openings, lots of job openings, and not necessarily what they see out in the open playing field as enough bodies to fill those roles. But we have, we, we feel we have this, you know, what is largely untapped potential. And the reality is, Many, 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 many people in the reentry population have significant experience, have significant education, but they're simply not given the opportunity to showcase that because they get eliminated from contention right off the bat. And, you know, and I'm going to, uh, like I said, I, I will use myself as the example. You know, I'm, I'm here in California and it will be an organization unnamed. They were beside themselves that somebody like me was willing to come and like interview for a position. And they straight up asked me, like, you know, what, what? and I'm like, well, you know, I, I wanted to make, make it, make a change. Um, and we went through the whole process and the hiring manager, they gave me the offer. Everything was like good to go. Um, and like the hiring manager was like texting me the other day because, you know, I'd brought up all these different ideas about things they had never considered in terms of, you know, where they would get grant funding from, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, yeah, I've never considered that. I'm so excited. 
The reality is in California, they've got to ban the box. So they never asked me about anything. But then when they ran the background check, it came back and, you know, had the conviction and they rescinded the offer. And the reality is, you know, I'm sure everybody's curious. I, I, I was convicted of something, you know, something related to logistics, moving one thing from this place to another location. And, you know, perhaps it was not, uh, you know, was not in line with our, our, our the current laws of the, of the land. And so do, did that mean that I would not have been an amazing employee for that individual? No, not at all. But the fact that they were you know, very hesitant to hire somebody with a conviction, offer was rescinded and moved on to, to other opportunities. And, but, and so, like I said, I think that I missed out on contributing to that organization and that organization missed out on me contributing to them. So what fair chance hiring really is about is about breaking down those biases and giving everybody an opportunity to move forward in a way that's beneficial to everybody. But again, so, you know, the primary focus of fair chance hiring, it's an employer's willingness to evaluate an applicant's skills before considering an application's past, past conviction. Obviously, I know that there are concerns about, you know, safety and things of, the, of that nature. But people who get out, and especially those who are on supervised release, they, are, they have never been more legally compliant in their life. You know, safety, I mean, recognize that these, they're released, they're out, they're out in society, they're, they're, they're amongst you. The desire and willingness to work in, in whatever environment is, you know, it's, it's strong there. And so this is really just giving them that opportunity to, to connect with employment and, and be fruitful. Hey, John, uh, so just yeah. to, to wrap up, um, you know, we had a, a bunch of questions that came in, you know, probably you can follow up on the number of these questions. Yeah. But I guess the key to this, you know, we're going to need about 200,000 fiber optic technicians yeah. across the nation. And people are asking, you know, was there any training in in the system that was focused on um, telecommunications, any of that kind of training? And then also, you know, are there, are there other issues of being able to get um, driver's license or business um, license or anything, you know, that other impediments that um, people should be aware of? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there is definitely technical training because, as I mentioned, there there is uh, they do manufacturing like there's the the PIA, which is like a, a parallel organization that's that employs wall wall incarcerated um, people from the, the inmate population. Uh, and so they do like electronics manufacturing. Uh, you know, is it is it directly, uh, you know, attached to telecommunication? I mean, it's technical skills, manufacturing skills, you know, tech related things. But, you know, I think that the, the ramp up would be relatively short for people with that, that type of experience. Um, so basically you could identify people with aptitudes to go through yeah. like our, um, fiber, our fiber path optical um, fiber optic technician training and so forth. Right. And what about other things as far, yeah, as, as, far as? Yeah, driver's license, uh, you know, having a, a felony conviction does not preclude you from getting driver's license, uh, you know, all, all that type. I mean, I, you know. I got a driver's my I got my driver's license renewed as soon as I got released. Um, you know, none of, none of that. I mean, most of the impediments that they that they face are really, I mean, the biggest impediment, and that's why we focus on it, is specifically the employment landscape. I mean, there you know, background checks do occur, and I think historically, background checks. The design of the background check was to identify, hey, this person said that they worked here and that they have this education. That's kind of what the original intent of the background check was was for. Uh, but then, you know, kind of morphed into this more like, well, if you've got a got criminal record, even if it's not necessarily anything related to what what you're doing, like, 
you know, we're, we're, we're concerned for our safety and, and, and things of that nature. But, but the reality is, even in the cases where somebody is convicted of a violent charge, often violence didn't even occur. But from a DA standpoint, they want those violent convictions. And so they say, hey, listen, we can take this to trial. And because you were in possession of X, Y, and Z, you're going to get 10 years and we're going to get you on that. Or you can plead down and we'll give you two years, but it's got to be a violent charge. Well, when you're sitting there looking at 10 versus two, you take the violent charge and that looks good for the DA, but then you are branded as a violent felon. Are you a violent person? Absolutely not. You're somebody who you know made a mistake and got wrapped up in something and you paid, paid with your time, you rehabilitated, you went through the classes and you're now ready to get back to it. Well, John, um, really appreciate this. Um, this topic is so important. You know, we have not only 200,000 fiber optic technicians, but we have all kinds of um, deployment positions we need to be able to make sure that we can get this fiber deployed across the country. You know, there's 2 million Americans in corrections today. And, you know, my belief is if we can get fiber to every American, we can help minimize the number of people going into corrections, providing more employment and education opportunities. And then also people coming out um, to be able to provide great opportunities because this is definitely um, a, a resource pool that we need to tap and make sure that we can be able to do that. So again, really appreciate it, John. Thanks for you know your passion and, and everything you're doing to help kind of make awareness and bring this forward. I want to thank everybody for joining us today and want to look forward to getting back together next Wednesday on Fire for Breakfast. We're going to be talking with Rich Rick Talbot of ACG Research to discuss the middle mile more traffic than you were expecting. You're not gonna to wanna to miss that. So thanks everyone. And uh, John, again, really appreciate it.